Hi there, everyone. I'm Naomi Mella, and you're listening to Smashing the Ceiling, the podcast that tells the stories of women with interesting, unusual, and inspiring careers. Now, if you've ever tried stand-up paddleboarding, you'll know it requires coordination, patience, and a whole lot of abdominal strength. Now imagine paddling a thousand miles whilst balancing large volumes of plastic waste that you've painstakingly collected from the water on your board. Enter this week's guest, Cal Major, who did just that earlier this year whilst on her way to becoming the first person ever to travel from Land's End to John O'Groats on a paddleboard, thereby setting the small achievement of a new world record in the process as part of her campaign, Paddle Against Plastic. Cal founded Paddle Against Plastic in 2016 and uses epic stand-up paddleboarding adventures to capture people's imagination, highlight the issue of plastic pollution close to home, and to promote positive change by promoting simple solutions. Land's End to John O'Groats is a massive deal in a car or by bike, but Cal faced genuinely dangerous tides, fog, injury during her preparation, huge sea swells, and hypothermia. Just your average trip then, really. Before that, she circumnavigated the Isle of Skye by paddleboard, and the film that was made of that trip has won numerous awards and been screened worldwide to highlight the issues of plastic pollution that our planet is suffering. This is a huge pertinent issue, and Cal is really well placed to drive change at both the local and national level. I really love her sense of positivity rather than desperation at the size of the problem. She's very much of the opinion that if everyone makes a small change, then together we can crack it. Cal is also a vet though, and we talked in this interview about the process she went through to leave her career behind, to follow her passions in a new direction. It's really hard to quit what you're doing and forge a new path, and she talks openly about the soul-searching and sort of grieving process that she went through with her coach, Penny Barker, when considering what she really wanted for her career. As ever though, we began at the beginning. So I was just going to start by kind of backtracking a little bit. You're obviously a vet and I was just going to ask you about your kind of early life and growing up and did you always want to be a vet? Like what were your career aspirations when you were young? Yeah, so I always wanted to work with animals. That was the main driving force. Um, And from about, I think I was about seven when I decided I wanted to be a vet and that was it then. I was was dedicated to becoming a vet. Um, And it was, it, it was always very, I was always very scientific and then it was always, you know, very animal focused. Um, and mostly wanted to become an equine vet. Uh, I was very horsey when I was younger. Um, and then before I went to vet school, I actually went over to Australia for a year uh, and spent the whole year basically surfing and scuba diving and just completely fell in love with the underwater world and got to swim with turtles and um, experience these incredible coral reefs. And then throughout my whole uni career, basically, I was determined that all I wanted to do was work with marine animals. So I kind of went from being determined to work with horses to knowing that my, my sort of calling, if you like, was to was to work in the marine setting and, and protect these animals that that were out there and their sort of fragile ecosystems. Um, but I carried on through uni and got my vet degree and then went into mixed practice. So um, mostly farm, but quite a bit of small animal and equine as well and then finally had my opportunity to to follow my equine dreams and sort of put my sort of marine conservation dreams as a as a hobby rather than as a career at this point in time um followed my equine uh, veterinary dreams and started an internship and then fortunately couldn't complete that because of um the problem I had with my hip so 
sort of defaulted into small animal locoming after that. Mm. <laughs> this is all in the space of about two years. <laughs> um, and then while I was locoming, it offered me the time I needed to really focus on what my heart had been craving the whole time, which was to um, work in, in marine conservation and protecting the the oceans and the animals that lived there. So that's when I started to get really curious about that side of things. Mm. So... Um, there's a mention on your website about surfers against sewage. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? And you mentioned kind of surfing and scuba diving. Did that all tie in with what you were wanting to do or how did that all kind of link together? Yeah, it, it definitely all tied in. So I, I strongly believe that people protect what they love. And if somebody appreciates a place or an environment or even a notion enough, then they're going to want to protect it. And so I think that's what really started to drive um, my desire to protect the ocean. I started to gain this really deep appreciation of how special they are and this love for being around them and in them and surfing and scuba diving. Um, and I, I moved down to the southwest and moved down to Devon to, to do a locum job. And I was surfing all the time and stand-up paddleboarding and um, and I just felt this real connection to the ocean and started to see all the problems that it was facing. So I started to see all the plastic and all the marine litter. Um, and that's what drove me into um, joining the sort of Surfers Against Sewage crew. So I became a Surfers Against Sewage rep um, and started running beach cleans. And, and having that connection to the ocean is what is what definitely what drove me into, um, into volunteering with Surfers Against Sewage to start with. It kind of became my tribe because it was this group of incredible like-minded people who all had so much passion to, um, to do what they can individually and as a team um, to protect these environments that we just love so much. Mm. So at that stage, you're working as a local vet, which for people who don't know, is uh, basically like being a supply teacher or a, a kind of fill-in a fill-in vet when people need extra cover. Um, how did you then get into kind of making environmental issues and that side of things a bit more your kind of full-time job, or, or how did you make the decision to take the plunge to to sort of leave? what you were doing at that stage it was definitely a process it didn't happen overnight so for a couple of years I worked as a locum vet to pay the bills and to, to fund my campaigns basically um it was all I, I never started campaigning as a way to um to sort of earn a living it was always very very driven by a passion and by a real need to talk to people about the environment and about the problems it faced and how we can protect it so I was working as a locum um part-time so three or four days a week um and then in my spare time I was creating these campaigns and, and volunteering with Surfers Against Sewage um and it, that's what drove me to my first expedition, which was um, stand-up paddleboarding around the whole Cornish coast, which took about three weeks. And I used the time that I wasn't working. I was basically working two full-time jobs, essentially. One was paid and one wasn't. Um, and, and the campaigning job was job, if you like, inverted commas, was basically um, I put all my energy and all my drive into trying to um, create a campaign around this expedition and use the expedition to highlight to people um, the plastic in the ocean you know the things that we were finding which is mostly plastic bottles and what we can do about it so the first campaign was very much directed at encouraging people to choose a refillable bottle over a plastic water bottle um, and then it kind of went from there. There was never any, uh, there was never any path laid out, and there was never any plan. I think that was that can be incredibly daunting for people who are looking to transition into a career in um, in ocean conservation or into into campaigning for something they care about. There's often not um, a step by step guide as to how to do it, and I found that very hard myself. It's a case of um, I'm, I'm going very much with what what my passion drives and and what I feel I need to talk to people about. Um, 
and it's uh, you know it, it, it's very much a journey at the moment uh, there's so much going on at the minute with plastic pollution people are desperate to find a way that they can be a part of it and so I, I sort of use my voice there to help direct people to how we can all be a part of this sort of bigger picture and protecting the oceans from plastic pollution um, so there definitely wasn't a um, a point where I thought right okay great I've set up a business here in, in ocean conservation I can step from being a vet into this it, it was very much a journey and this year I focused specifically on um on my campaign so I haven't worked the locum since um uh, since the beginning of the year because my campaigns have needed all my time and all my energy um and it's been quite an exciting year but also quite a terrifying year because you know all I've, all I've thought about doing since I was seven is is being a vet and all of a sudden I'm you know working in a completely different field where um like I say there just isn't a path laid out for you. Cal and I got into a massive chat at this point about our respective side hustles running those alongside work and the challenges that brings As two people who have had a very traditional scientific education, we've been taught a lot of critical thinking, but the creative side of running a brand hasn't come easily to either of us. Juggling things and learning the ropes of technology has certainly been a little bit tricky at times. (laughs) It's never ending, is it? It really is. And actually, it kind of makes you realise that you just don't have to really be stuck in a job to make ends meet. But when I do then start doing different things, it's it's a lot of organisation to get your life in many different strands, isn't it? When you used to be able to just walk into a practice, do your job, walk away and get paid, then having to sort of drive all of that yourself and do all the background stuff, which takes days and days and days to get the same kind of daily wage is, is just, it's impossible, isn't it? It's, it is. It's... It is. And the other thing, I'm, I don't know if it's the same with you, but I'm finding like getting to grips with social media and how to drive people to read and listen is more difficult than I thought, actually. Yeah, I've definitely found that. I've been doing it for four years now and I still don't think I've got the hang of it. It's really hard. And um, in terms of campaigning, obviously what we learn at vet school is is really scientific and everything's kind of, there's a lot of rote learning, there's an awful lot of volume, but there's not so much creativity associated with that and it's a very scientific-led uh, degree. In terms of learning how to campaign, have you learned from other people or have you had mentors or have you kind of just made it up as you went along? Or So I think campaigning there are obviously there are um organizations that campaign in a very specific way and i'm sure that there's learning you know i'm sure that there's degrees on this stuff but i strongly believe that that there's campaigns that i do are very much from the heart so they're very much from what i want to say to other people um there's no um like i i I think the the most effective campaigns are the ones that come with passion and and that come with drive and that come with realness and that's what i try to do with my campaigns i'm one person trying to talk to other individual people and trying to help um, people to understand the importance of the, these incredible oceans that are around us um, and how they can form their own personal connection with those oceans which will then drive the desire to protect them I'm sort of highlighting to people from my own personal experiences what I'm seeing and what I'm finding in the ocean in terms of plastic pollution and um, my ideas as to how we can um, collaboratively affect change for that um, and I've learned a lot from um, volunteering with Surface Against Sewage about the plastic pollution problem and um, about how campaigns, you know, big campaigns run, definitely. But my campaign is, is very much a personal campaign, trying to reach people on an individual level. Um, 
and you, you, you're dead right at vet school, you know, you're not taught anything about this, about creativity. It's very much, you know, tick boxes and, and learn your stuff and, and do your thing. This is very much a massive learning curve. And I started campaigning very much trying to sort of highlight plastic bottles and this, that and the other. And I've come to learn that people will connect with an individual that they feel that they can relate to. So um, I've started very much more to direct my campaigns on that personal level because it has so much more impact. And I never wanted to sort of be the, you know, the face of these campaigns. I always sort of hid under this title of Paddle Against Plastic um, until I realised that it was the, the the person behind the campaigns that people want to be able to relate to. That's and quite nerve wracking, isn't it? Putting yourself out there like that as well. Massively nerve wracking because as well, a lot of my campaigns have run through social media. So I don't want to be one of those people that's taking selfies of themselves all the time <laughs> and just posting up pictures. Um, but if you don't get that human factor, the campaigns that I'm trying to run here, if, if I don't allow people to relate to who I am um, and why it matters to me, then I, I don't think I stand a chance of helping people understand why it might matter to them as well. Um, but yeah, and, it's very nerve-wracking. <laughs> yeah, sure. No, God, I can completely imagine. I mean, I'm finding the same in terms of I'm sort of hiding behind the mask of the podcast in a way and I haven't been very confident about putting myself out there but it's really encouraging to talk to other women um who who have done and you know in terms of making your own personal brand that's a that's a big thing in its in its own right regardless of what your area is or what your thing is creating a brand is actually what it's all about in terms of making yourself successful particularly when you're campaigning absolutely yeah Cal's big trip of 2017 was to circumnavigate the incredible wild island of Skye on the west coast of Scotland, which was terrifying for multiple reasons, as she mentioned, so completing it was a major achievement. I asked her to tell me a little bit about the expedition. Yeah, sure. So the Isle of Skye expedition was completely different to anything I'd ever done before because I was... um, completely alone there was nobody I knew on the island I didn't have any support on the water or on land at all so it was basically just me and my paddleboard and some really badly packed food rations I basically survived off mashed potato for three days I think mashed potato until next tea cakes um and it was a very nerve-wracking experience it was it was a terrifying experience but also a very empowering experience because being out on the water there on my own I realized that if someone had said to me a week before, these are the situations you're going to get into, Kyle. This is what you're going to have to deal with. These are the decisions you're going to have to make. I'd have pulled out then and said, there's no way I can do that. That's, you know, that's impossible. I don't know what I'll be able to do in those situations. But being out there alone with no phone signal, no one to talk to, no one to run things past, it was very empowering in that I realized I had all the skills I needed within me and all that information and and knowledge and power to actually make those decisions and to keep myself safe and to, um, uh, and to keep pushing on through winds and swell and tidal races and and to get to the end of that still in one piece, physically at least, um, was, was very, very empowering. Um, and the whole point of this, uh, Isle of Skye trip was again to highlight the plastic pollution around the Isle of Skye and not specifically the Isle of Skye but remote islands remote places in the UK that are perhaps a little bit more out of sight out of mind so with Cornwall um, the plastic pollution um, uh, awareness is huge now and people are going to these beaches and they're seeing the the bottles and the fishing nets and the um, you know the straws and the cotton buds but in the Isle of Skye and in places around um, Scotland and even in England where there are beaches that aren't as well visited the the issue is is so much um less in the forefront of our of our knowledge and i wanted to highlight it to people 
you know, the Isle of Skye is very much sort of as this beautiful, incredible, wild holiday destination. And, and it is, it really is. But um, what we don't see is is the, the threats that this incredible environment faces. And I came across so much more plastic than I was expecting. Um, I was camping on, on beaches that you couldn't get to by land. So I was, you know, wading through plastic the whole way up the beach. Um there was one day I found a, a cow that was that was chewing on a fishing rope and she was just stood there for ages just just chewing on the fishing rope and there was this entire herd of beef cows and this flock of sheep that were on the beach and they were they were chewing the seaweed because it has minerals in that that they're attracted to but amongst all the seaweed was just so much plastic it was like 50 50 seaweed and plastic so they're inevitably going to be swallowing this stuff um so we made a film out of that expedition, actually, which is which has been um, shown all around the world, in China and uh, America and even Africa, um, to highlight to people this situation. And the number one kind of response we've had from people is like, we had no idea that that this was the case on these you know remote places and and in the UK. Um, so it was a very, very hard-hitting expedition for myself and also for the awareness that we could raise around it. Um, yeah, sure. And if people want to hear, catch that film, um, what's it called and where can they find it, Cal? So it's called Sky's the Limit and it's screened, um, the various screenings around the UK um, still happening. It's actually going to be part of the Patagonia Warnwear Tour, which is going to come to North Devon and Cornwall in the next couple of weeks. Um, it's also online. If you go to paddleagainstplastic.com and go to the Sky's the Limit tab there's a link there to to watch the film perfect so after that then you've obviously done your big expedition this year which i definitely want to talk about um so you are the first person to have stand up paddleboarded from land's end to john O'Groats, which is a really long way um how did you go you said you had badly bad packed bags when you went to sky how did you go about planning such a big expedition as that because presumably that has been a long time in the offing oh man it, the planning was just oh I didn't really know what to expect because you can't when you're out doing an ocean expedition you can't say right I'm going to do 20 miles that day and I'm going to do 30 miles that day and I'm going to stop here and I'm going to start there on this day because the ocean and the weather will dictate exactly how many miles you do that day and where you're going to stop so it's not like I could say right I'll stop there because there's a pub and I can eat there or whatever it was a case of well the wind's really good today so I know I'll be able to do 40 miles or I've got a headwind today so I'll be lucky if I do five miles um so planning stops and rations was impossibly difficult and before I left I had my entire living room was basically just I packed 12 boxes which was a week's worth of essential supplies each so in there was like a jar of coconut oil and I'd spent months dehydrating vegetables that I had plastic free rations that I could take with me so I had like in each box like a jar of vegetables and a jar of rice and um, some clean pants and you know all this stuff that I thought I'd be really organized and I sort of sent it to various places up the UK and my neighbors had a box that when I was passing here they could they could um some supply me and I barely used any of it so now I've basically got cupboards of this stuff that I didn't use um this trip was so different to the Isle of Sky trip because um I wasn't alone um I was alone on the water but I had a lot of support on land yeah. so people well, I'd never met before <laughs> yeah and I was so stubborn before I set off I was packing my bags like oh I won't see anyone for five days and I'm gonna do this all myself and I'm gonna be an independent woman and I don't need no help and after about two days and I was hypothermic <laughs> and starving hungry <laughs> and 
so alone and cold and tired as well guys you know that help you off it I'd like to take it up now <laughs> somebody so help had, me exactly so I had loads of support from people I'd never met who were messaging saying we live here come and stay or we'll bring you food um or we'll come and paddle with you and it was so touching to have that support and I also had my boyfriend who came and did a lot of land support with me he he filmed and photographed the expedition um so he came and resupplied me regularly which was so essential and then I had a tracker on me that my parents had the link to so especially the inland sections every which was not far from their home every now and then they'd just kind of pop up out of a bush with like a, a plate of hot food for me so hey mom all right no idea she's going to be there but she just arrived with a food parcel um so that's what mums are for isn't it oh so great so I, I barely had any um the the organizational side of it that I thought I'd need to be super organized and have to get everything ready and everything had to be sort of perfectly in line before I set off all you know went down the pan and it was very much a case of um you know I'd, I'd plan the next couple of days um only a couple of days ahead of time because that's the only time you could have a, a kind of realistic idea of what the weather was going to do and where I might be able to stop and in terms of your route, how did you um, how did you pick the route you were going to take? Because part of it was inland, as you said, through rivers and canals and waterways. Yeah. So, so originally I wanted to go around the whole Welsh coast. So I wanted to do it as much ocean based as possible. Um, and then I, I started to realise that a lot of the problem with plastic pollution awareness is that there's a massive disconnect between our lives inland and those um, out to sea. So there's this huge um, disconnection between um, us as human beings living in the middle of an island and the oceans that surround it. So I wanted to kind of bring the message inland a little bit. And I knew that a lot of the plastic pollution was originating from inland sources. Um, So I wanted to see what was going on in the rivers and in the canals. And so I I actually took a detour. It wasn't a detour. It was actually probably the most direct route. very very wiggly inland route but I went up the Bristol Channel and then onto the canals at uh, just below Gloucester and did 200 miles of canals from Gloucester back, back up to Blackpool um and I canals that it's not it's not my normal paddling scene like I, I love the ocean I paddle in the ocean because I feel connected to it and so this is a very different environment for me and it was a huge learning curve and I'd say that 200 miles of canals even though physically um the conditions were you know perfect there was no tides to worry about there was no wind there were no um swell it was you know flat water calm paddling that was the most difficult 200 miles of the whole trip because it was just plastic after plastic after plastic and animals that you know little ducklings that were swimming past plastic bottles and and it was so hard to see how devalued these plastic items were that they were just being tossed into canals and into rivers and especially in the rivers where they were just flowing straight out to sea you know balloons and bottles and bags um so it was hard in terms of seeing the plastic it was also hard because there was no danger so there was no <laughs> nothing motivating me to just um keep going but I'm very very glad I, I chose to do that because I feel like I've got a real message now that I can talk to people about this this need for us to to look inland as well as as coastally mm. and in terms of physical training um that's a you know it's a big challenge on your body um you said at the beginning that you feel like you're still recovering how did you go about prepping yourself physically and mentally for that in addition to the actual practical preparation as well yeah um so my previous expeditions I trained very very hard this expedition I was actually injured up until 
the start of the trip. So I had oh uh, yeah, I had biceps tendonitis in my left shoulder. Um, I'd just trekked across a desert, so I'd basically spent two oh, weeks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd spent two weeks carrying a very heavy backpack, and the muscles in my neck and around my shoulder were just all screwed up. Um, so the preparation for the ex tradition was basically rehab was physio rehab and trying to um get my body ready for for this onslaught of activity mm. um and I kind of accepted I, I came to this point of acceptance that I wasn't going to be able to really train that I knew what I was doing in terms of paddleboarding and that the fitness was just going to have to come and it very much did that like, the first few days were really hard work and you know I was getting sort of 17 20 miles a day by the end I was doing 40 miles a day and it, it was fine um my body was in pieces I was exhausted but I could do it like that fitness had built up um and it's really interesting I find the human body fascinating because it will adapt so quickly to to what you're doing so by the end of this trip you know, I could paddle days and days without stopping um I couldn't do anything else so I'd you know sat off my board and I couldn't walk up a flight of stairs I'd be like out of breath by the top of it um so I just let my body do do its thing, and it unfortunately and did. Cool, that's really good. And what have you got coming up next off the back of this? Have you got things planned in the pipeline, or where are you thinking of heading next with Paddle Against Plastic? Yeah, so there's a lot I still want to communicate from this trip that I've done, so I'm hoping to write a book about it, because there's so much that happened that I just haven't been able to talk to people about yet. Um so I think that's a really good way to to communicate those points. And also we'll make a wee film about this one as well um, when we get a chance to sort of get all the footage out and get it all edited because there's a lot of footage. Um, so that's the plan with with this trip. And I'm looking forward to doing that. Um, I, I really, I, I think the, the connection between, like we were saying earlier, the, this sort of connection between individual people and human being to human being, I think is really essential in, in delivering a message to people. So I'm sort of focusing on, um, on delivering talks and talking to people about plastic pollution, about um, endurance um, events and, and about how we can relate what we learn from being out in the ocean and, and, and doing these um, high intensity events to um, driving positive change in the environment and, and this need to reconnect to the environment. Um, and then I've got a couple of a couple of expeditions on the back of my mind. Cool. Um, so the first of which um, is I want to continue basically join up the dots of coastline that I've not done yet. So that I basically circumnavigate the UK. Obviously, it won't be in a wanna, um, but do all the bits I haven't done yet. So that okay. I'm all the way around. So I get a real good picture of what's going on in the UK. Um, and then there are a couple of other ones which um, I need to figure out whether or not they're possible before I start shouting about them. So I'm going to keep quiet about them. <laughs> um, but there's some exciting plans in the pipeline for sure. Okay. And just just as a, as a sneaky, will that be in the UK or abroad? Um, a, mm, a bit of both, actually. Okay. Oh, cool. Excellent. Okay. Well, that is, that is good. That is good. And I was just going to come back to... Um, the notion of veterinary and you know giving up your life of being a professional to pursue a dream um you know this is something that um lots of people who have taken a very focused career path whatever that may be whether you're a doctor or a vet or a teacher or a lawyer or whatever um find it very difficult to grasp the notion that you can give that up to do something that you love it's a big leap do you have any thoughts on that did you have any judgment or or um 
people who came down on you quite hard about that or did was everybody yeah. very supportive about the choices you made because it's it's a big step that it's a huge step um it was very very difficult and it still is to this day very difficult because I think we would sort of it's drilled into us this notion that you have a career path and you know you are a vet so even the other day I was speaking to my brother and he's saying right when you going back to work I'm like well I'm actually working on my campaigns at the minute and he's saying yeah but Cal you're a vet I'm like yeah, but I'm I'm not working as a vet just at the moment. You know, it's something that I, I'm I still identify myself as a, a vet, but I'm not clinically practicing at the moment, and and that's okay, and I'm okay with it. But I ha- I've had to come through definitely a journey of of getting to that point where I'm okay to say to people, especially people I respect or people I love, who are who just don't understand this idea that I'm not practicing at the moment, um, to say to them, it's okay, I'm not doing that just at the moment, and. Um, I actually was was very fortunate to to have a, a, a really incredible coach, Penny Barker, um, who has helped me through this um, this transition um, and and this kind of acceptance for myself that it's okay for me not to have to have that identity and not to have to fulfil that identity, um, and that it's all right for me to not do what people expect you to do with a veterinary degree um and that this is I, I know where my passions are I know what my heart wants I know what I want to do um and that it's okay to accept that and to sort of almost move away from from what you've previously done and it's definitely it's a, a huge change and it's a grieving process and it's it's a loss and there's all these um crazy psychological things that come along with it um and I was very fortunate that my you know my family and my close friends have been nothing but supportive the whole time um and, and very understanding of, of my need to do what I'm doing um so I've not had that external pressure um but sometimes you, you know I, I do slip back into that into that thinking of you know what what are you doing Kyle you you know you you you've had you got this degree in in veterinary medicine and and it's trying to understand that actually that degree in veterinary medicine has set me up for a lot of things it's allowed me to be locum I've loved practicing as a vet there's been so much about it that I have loved there's been a lot about it that I haven't but um it's not about desperately leaving this career because and and, you know do my campaigning because I'm desperate to find something else to do it's that my heart and my soul and my passion is to drive forward positive environmental change and working as a vet does not allow that like working full-time as a vet does not allow me to do that and so it's looking at you know what yes I'm giving this up but what am I gaining in in exchange for that and actually that's really powerful encouragement for people to know that just because you choose to move away from something that you have worked towards for a high proportion of your early life does not mean that you're a failure it just means that you're looking for something different and actually it's so encouraging to hear you to hear you say that I mean I'm interested um in the in what you said about having a coach as well actually have you found that to be very helpful in allowing you to pursue what you've wanted to do massively helpful um so I was I feel so fortunate to have Penny as my coach. She's just amazing. And uh, I think as a, especially if you're trying to follow a career path that doesn't have a set, um, doesn't have a set, you know, doesn't have stepping stones. Um, no one's there to tell you how to do it. And it can feel very lonely. And I do work alone. I, I do have a, I've started to get really into this idea of having a team, which I, I really value. So, um, you know, Penny's on my team. I've got my physio on my team. I've got um, James, who's doing my photographs. I had a lovely lady called Leslie Quinn, who um, helped me with my PR for, for the last um, trip. I've got this team, but essentially it's me that's driving the change. It's me that's driving it forward. Um, so to just do that on your own, 
own is a very daunting task and um, it can be difficult to know that you're doing the right thing. And so having Penny there, she she didn't sort of tell me what to do. She helped me unlock my, this sounds so kind of coachy talk, but helped me unlock <laughs> my, my own ideas and my own potential and just kind of almost justified that transition away from from practicing as a vet um, she helped me understand that these feelings I was feeling were were justified and were normal and it was okay for me to want to choose a different career path at this point in my life um, and even now you know we, we speak every couple of weeks and um, it, it's in- incredibly valuable to me to have had that support and to have that um, that person to help facilitate those decision making uh, those decisions and um and the sort of forward progress and where to go next it, yeah. it just feels like I'm so much less alone in, in in this journey and it's wonderful to hear about women encouraging other women you know having Penny as your as your mentor and your coach is is brilliant and actually you know it allows you in time that you can see what a role model she has been for you and and what a help she's been for you in the hope that you can help other people in that way as well to fulfill their own dreams in the future which becomes a really nice self-perpetuating cycle really that's a really nice way of looking at it yeah definitely yeah cool and and have you done much um uh, off the back of your kind of publicity and success in this in terms of going into schools and and do you do a lot of public speaking and encouragement in that way as well yeah so I, like I was saying before I think that human to human connection um and that personal um re- relation to to somebody is so powerful in driving change and I think that's where so this has been such a huge journey like I've, I've gone from basically thinking that putting a couple of pictures on Instagram of plastic bottles will change the world to realizing that you need to talk to people and you need to relate to people on a personal level and I think public speaking is is the most powerful way of doing that so that's kind of what I focus my time on corporate events adventure expos and, and that kind of thing um, and that's kind of what I focus my time on now um, and I find it incredibly rewarding because it's one thing to you know put a video out there but it's another thing to be there in as a person in the flesh and people to be able to relate to what you're trying to say and and to hear that what you have to say to somebody has changed their perception of the environment or has encouraged them to go out and go stand up paddleboarding or has encouraged them to go and do a litter pick or to to switch to a refillable bottle so from a sort of um almost selfish point of view that's very very rewarding to know that I that all this time and effort that I'm putting into this campaign is is making a difference I think that human to human connection is really really important and um I think it's 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 sort of if we want to make really positive change we have to collaborate and everybody has to be in it for their own reasons it's something that is um going to be fulfilling to them as well so yeah I think public speaking is an incredibly powerful tool to help to do that and if people want to follow you look at what you're doing watch your videos where can they find you online and on social media so social media it's um at cal underscore major and Facebook is Cal Major Paddle Against Plastic. Um, and that's where I do most of my updates. And then I'm on Twitter as um, if you just search Cal Major, you'll, you'll find me on Twitter. Um, and uh, there's the website paddleagainstplastic.com. Basically, my whole campaign is about communicating a message. So um, I write a lot of articles and um, we're producing the films and um, sort of public speaking at various events around the UK so I'll be updating my social media as to where I'll be when um and yeah it's it's always lovely to talk to people um who are interested in this stuff so and if people are interested in getting involved in you know 
environmentalism and campaigning against plastic and that sort of thing where would you suggest that they go to get involved with opportunities for that sort of thing Mm. so the first thing I'd say is to find your tribe so find that group of people who you can uh, relate to and that you can um, campaign with and and volunteer with so uh, I'm a a surface against sewage uh, regional rep and that has been pivotal for me um, just knowing that I've got a a team there and sort of being inspired by my uh, my teammates if you like um so uh, Surfers Against Sewage run a campaign called Plastic Free Coastlines, uh, which is basically it's um, empowering communities to make really amazing positive changes to stop single-use plastic at source in their communities. So it's bringing together individuals, business leaders, schools, um, cafes and shops and and all different sectors of the community to look at where they're using single-use plastic and to switch it out where possible. And I would suggest that that's a really great start to, to get involved with. So if you head to the Surfers Against Sewage website, there'll be links there of, of how you can get in touch. And if there isn't already um, a campaign in your community, um, that you can set your own up. Basically, this is the beauty of it. This is grassroots activism at its best. Um, you, you know, you can be an individual working within your community to bring about real, tangible, amazing change. Um, or you can work with people already uh, running these campaigns in your community. There's one last thing I could say to everyone is just to try and stay positive. I know that this environmental crisis is huge and can seem very overwhelming, but there is so much we can do about it. So, um, yeah, try and stay positive and and look at the look at the solutions rather than the the doom and gloom looking at the solution is always great advice and there is certainly a lot that everyone can do themselves to help with the plastic problem worldwide start with a reusable coffee mug and a refillable water bottle and you're on the right road to reducing single-use materials but check out cal's website for more tips thanks so much to cal for joining me and thanks for listening i can't tell you how much it means to me Please subscribe if you haven't already and feel free to leave us a nice review on your favorite podcast site as it helps others to find us. More importantly, if you enjoyed it, spread the word as word of mouth is still the most powerful form of advertising. You can follow us on Twitter at Smashing Ceiling and on Instagram at Smashing The Ceiling and we'll hopefully see you next time.